Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. And I uh, hope that uh, many of you can, if not all of you, can join us again this evening as we gather together again and worship together, but also for that time of fellowship, uh, wonderful time of fellowship that we have uh, every uh, fourth Sunday as we gather and uh, share a meal together, of course, and uh, worship God in song. Tonight, uh, as I mentioned in our uh, bulletin note, I'm going to be sharing some information from our brethren in China uh, and the difficulties that they are going through um, there. Um, so I hope you can join us uh, for that as well. Um, it's troubling, uh, to say the least, um, what's, what's happening over there, especially with the Lord's Church and um, the saints that, that meet there. Um, the reason I bring that up and the reason it kind of ties into what we're talking about this morning is uh, our hope our joy, and our glory. Uh, As Dale's uh, version read, and and many other versions say, um, at the end there in verse 20, um, that uh, what is our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? What is our crown of glory before Jesus? And uh, this morning we're going to look at how Paul answers that. What is his joy? What is his hope and what is his glory? Um, And then look at how that applies to us or what should be our hope, our joy, and our crown of glory before the Lord as well. I hope you've noticed as we've been going through uh, the New Testament here in 2018, remember our series title is Together in God's Word in 2018. The key word to that is together. I know it's kind of small in the graphic, but together. You know, in Acts chapter 2, after some 3,000 saints were added to the church on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 verse 42 details what the church continued doing together. And that was continuing in the teaching of the apostles. Of course, the teaching of the apostles, Paul is an apostle, we have many of his teachings, but the teachings of the apostles were the gospel. They were the gospels that we have today. They continued in the word of God together unified as one, one mind, one body. And so what I've tried to do throughout this series is weave in this thread of unity and togetherness and how we can build that within our local congregation, but also with the Lord's church globally. I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 17 as we begin our study this morning of of 2 Thessalonians. And you may be wondering, why are we going to Acts Uh, to talk about Thessalonians. Well, to get some context behind what Paul is talking about in Thessalonians, we have to go back to Acts where we see the action or whatever happened to Paul in Thessalonica and why he longs so so much to be with the Thessalonians. Um, Soon after the church in Thessalonica was started, Paul and, and those who were with him were forced to leave. Um, and that's what we find in Acts chapter 17. Look at verses 5 through 9 here. And uh, look at the audience, or not, not the audience, but the group of people that are causing much of the, much of the uh, turmoil. Starting in verse uh, 5 of Acts 17. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men 
who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Uh, And if you look at verse 10, Paul, who was with Silas, they were uh, sent away by night to Berea. So Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica. They were bringing the message of Jesus, bringing the message of the kingdom to those that were there. And the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, prompted a riot. They dragged out those who were uh, harboring Paul and Silas. Revealed them to the city authorities, and ultimately they took a bribe. The city authorities took a bribe so that they would leave them alone. This ties in directly with what's going on in China right now, by the way. Well, again, we'll talk more about that tonight. But in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, Paul reflects upon their abrupt departure. In verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you want to turn over there now, you can. We'll be spending most of the time um, there as we look through this section. But in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, this abrupt departure that they had created an eager desire to see them again. In verse 18, he talks about how Satan had hindered them from fulfilling that desire, and then that prompted him to ask the question, uh, more rhetorical in nature because he really just answers it, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting, he says in verse 19. And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves the same questions when we think about our life, when we think about our Christian walk, uh, which should be our everyday life. It's not just what we do on Sunday. It's not just what we do when we gather together with the saints, but how we live our lives as Christians. What is our hope? For what do we long with desire and expectation? What is our joy? What is it that gives us true happiness and satisfaction? And what is our crown of boasting? What provides the highest degree of joy in our lives? Is our answer the same as Paul's? And should it be? That's what I hope to look at this morning. So as we consider that, as we consider what our answer should be, let's examine more closely our text and the answer that Paul gave about his hope, glory, and joy. And first we need to look at Paul's desire to see the Thessalonians in verse 17. Again, he had been taken away from them. He is referring, of course, to that, un- or that necessary departure. I almost said unnecessary, but it was necessary that they leave. Otherwise, they probably would have been put to death at that point. But it was necessary for them to leave. And he uses a word here in verse 17. He uses a word. Um, he says, uh, in, in the ESV, it says, we were torn away from you. And the word that Paul uses is a word that implies a painful bereavement. Um, it's, it's likened to a child being taken away from their parent. That's the word that he uses. That's the pain. Think about that pain, either from the parent's perspective or the child's perspective. Either one is a deep pain of being removed from the Thessalonians. Um, He then says that he was only away from them for a short time. Now, we don't know exactly how long he was away from them, possibly um, uh, a year, probably not more than a year, maybe just a few months. Um, But nonetheless, just in that short time, 
It's, he then says he endeavored more eagerly to see them with great desire. Do you, do you hear the passion that he has in that? He, he repeatedly emphasizes his desire to see them, his desire to be with them. And his desire was likely increased by the manner in which he had to leave them in the first place. He was concerned for them, right? There's a, there's a true concern for what's going on in Thessalonica. But he was prevented. And we learn, of course, uh, what prevented him. Um, in verse 18, he says that he wanted to come see them time and again, but he was hindered. And he says that it was Satan who hindered him. Now, here's an interesting piece of this. And I want you to think about this as we, as we look at this together. Um, he attributes the persecution of his fellow Jews. Remember, Paul was raised a Jew, and there are many Jewish converts that are amongst the Christians. But their fellow Jews, their probably neighbors and former friends, he attributes the persecution by them to Satan. It was the unbelieving Jews who were constantly hounding him. They were following him from place to place. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 5, it says, The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed up a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Then in verse 13, it says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard or learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also remember Paul and Silas left Thessalonica, went to Berea, They didn't stop preaching the gospel. They continued. And then the Jews in Thessalonica heard about it. And then they went to Berea too, he says in verse 13, agitating and stirring up the crowds. This group, these rabble-rousers, if you will, of Jews, unbelieving Jews, went and followed Paul from place to place, hounding him. It was likely the same group who stoned the apostle in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. And I think, as I've been studying through this this week, I think that this group was the thorn in the flesh that Paul alludes to in, first, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Oftentimes we think about this thorn in the flesh as some kind of physical ailment. But listen to the words that he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10 here. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. There, two times he uses the word conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know about you, and it's possible that this thorn in the flesh was some kind of physical ailment that Paul had. Some kind of flu bug or or pain that maybe tried to prevent him from, from presenting the gospel. For example, I'm dealing with extreme vertigo right now. You can't see it, but the room is moving for me. That is a thorn in the flesh, if you will, to prevent one from presenting a message. But I have a large podium to hold on to, thankfully. But when we read the words of Paul here in 2 Corinthians, in verse 7, a messenger of Satan to harass me, 
I don't know how a thorn in the flesh can harass someone, but the crowds harassed him. They followed him everywhere and continuously harassed him. He was persecuted. He was insulted. He faced hardships and calamities because of this crowd, this crowd of Jewish unbelievers that were following him. Perhaps it was an ailment, but perhaps it too was this group of unbelieving Jews that were hounding him, trying to keep him from spreading the gospel. No matter what, whether it was a physical ailment or this group, Satan was behind it. Satan is the ultimate source behind the persecution suffered by the early church and that suffered today. Consider what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-9. through 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter is talking about persecution. Peter is talking about how the church is being treated around the world by unbelievers. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because the devil is looking for ways to influence and destroy the Lord's church. But even still, through all of this, Paul has considerable hope, glory, and joy. I missed a point. There it is. I missed two points. Woo! All right. So in uh, verses 19 through 20, let's look at this again so it's fresh in our mind. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. What was Paul's hope, glory, and joy? Paul says that it was his brethren. The Thessalonians were Paul's hope because he hoped to see them at the coming of the Lord. They were his joy, or crown of rejoicing, or crown of boasting, in anticipation of seeing them in the presence of Jesus. And they were his glory and joy, not just in the future, but in the present as well. Notice the tense that's used in verse 20. He says, you are our glory and joy. His hope Glory and joy were his brethren in Christ, especially those he had taught and brought to the Lord. But not just the Thessalonians. Paul uses this phrase elsewhere, too. He calls the brethren at Philippi his joy and crown. He also longed to see them. He longed to see all of the brethren. But, of course, we can't be everywhere at once, can we? And you see the... The cool thing about this is that it works both ways. At the coming of Christ, Paul would be the source of joy for those he taught, which he tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. He says, On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. It's mutual. So now let's consider what ought to be our hope, glory, and joy. For some Christians, it may be their possessions. Their hope is in the acquisition of material things. Their glory or their pride is what 
is found in what they have obtained, what they have. Their joy, their happiness is found in the pleasure that those things give them. But such things are perishable. They're susceptible to theft. They draw us away from God. And so it's unwise to have them as our hope, glory, and joy. Consider what John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There are many things in this world. There are many things that we all want, desire to have, desire to bring us joy. But ultimately it is God, His Word, that should fill that void. For some Christians it may be their jobs. Because without a job, those things aren't necessarily possible, right? Jobs bring about security. Their hope is in the advancement of their careers so that they can make more and more money. Their glory, their pride is in how far they have come. And their joy or their happiness is in the, pa- the money and the power and the prestige that they may have obtained through their job. But our jobs and all that they bring can be fleeting, especially in today's economy, right? Our jobs may be gone tomorrow. Our companies may downsize. Our companies may just go out of business, and we, have, we can't do anything about it. For some Christians, their hope, glory, and joy may be their families. Their hope is what their families may become, And I would say that for many who place their hope in family, you know, I see all too often young couples struggling with fertility. And they have so much hope, they place so much hope in having a child that when they find out maybe they can't or they struggle and struggle and can't have children, they lose that hope. And then they start doubting their faith, they start losing faith. Because their hope is in growing a family and not trusting in the Lord. Their glory, for some, their pride is what families have become. Look how great my family has become. I've seen you know, families of, of preachers that have like generations of preachers that came after them. And I can just imagine the pride that, you know, the, the patriarch of that family, the, the, the first one that became a preacher. You know, I think about my sons. You know, will they grow up and be preachers someday? If they want to, great. I hope so. And what joy that would bring me. But I can't put my pride in that. The joy or the happiness is in the relationship they may enjoy with their families. I'm not talking about Thanksgiving time, right? Around Thanksgiving, there's not a lot of joy and happiness that we see around our families, right? There's always arguing and politics and all of that. Now, hope and joy and pride and glory in in your family is certainly more noble and, and probably more rewarding than possessions or job. But even our families are limited. 
and the joys and glory that they can bring because death ultimately ends that relationship. That ends our relationship as family. And if they're not Christians, what does that do to our hope? Because the hope that Paul had was to see them all at the coming of the Lord. For all Christians, our hope, our glory, and our joy should be, our hope should be to see each other in heaven, just as Paul's was. To see each other with Jesus in the presence of the Lord at His coming. What a wonderful occasion, what a glorious reunion that should be. And we should spend our time on this earth, as Dave has said before, getting other people there with us. Because that is our hope. Our glory should be seeing each other in the presence of the Lord. Serving the Lord faithfully now, together, side by side, and being glorified together with Jesus when He comes. Consider this from our reading for next week in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 10 through 12. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the prayer that Paul had. Is that a prayer that we have? Is that an aim that we have in our life? Our joy should be the happiness coming from our working together in the Lord. The joy that is experienced by John when he saw others walking in the truth. Second John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And in his next letter, 3 John, verses 3 through 4, he says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came, and you testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. When he says, my children, he's referring to those who listened and obeyed. The joy of working together in the Lord is the same joy that Paul experienced when he told of the faithfulness of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6-9. through 9. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Our hope, our glory, and our joy should be in that which is eternal. Not things of this world, but eternal things. Otherwise, we are setting ourselves up for eventual disappointment and for some eternal disappointment. 
Our possessions, our jobs, and even our families cannot provide true hope, glory, and joy because all of those things are of this world and are fleeting. At best, our possessions, jobs, and families, what they offer is just temporary. But at worst, they provide disappointment and can draw us away from God if we're not careful. Since much of our hope, glory, and joy, both now and in eternity, is through our brethren, as Paul has told us, and as we see exemplified by the Thessalonians, it is important that we nurture and strengthen our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is imperative that we seek to bring others to Christ, including those in our physical families. Because that effort not only brings us closer to each other, but it brings us closer to God, and it produces that which lasts for eternity. And then we shall truly be able to say to each other, you are our glory and our joy. Can we say that now? Where will you spend your eternity? If you've not obeyed the gospel of Christ, then your eternal hope is one that I hope you wish to avoid. As Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 16, Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. He gives the two paths, the narrow way and the wide one. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That's one eternal hope. Those who do not believe will be condemned. That's the other one. Let today be your day of salvation. Let today be the day that you obey the gospel, be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. If we can assist you with that, or any other need that you may have, through prayer or study or comfort, now is the time that you can come forward while we stand and sing.